Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions and honour so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, 
the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? I'd like to ask a question. Um, If you had more money than you do at the moment, if you had more money, what would you do with it? Maybe that's a tantalising question. Say, say it wasn't a huge amount. Say you got a pay rise, just, you know, a few percent. I guess it wouldn't make a radical change. Um, it might mean you had a bit more breathing space from month to month. Or maybe the chance to save a bit. Or you could think about upgrading your wardrobe, your holiday. Just little improvements like that if you had just a little bit more money. Well, suppose you got a bigger sum. Suppose an inheritance, a rich aunt, leaves you 50 grand. What would you do with that? You could pay off the student loans. You could uh, pay off the mortgage early. You could put away something very significant simply for the future. Although, of course, after a bit of spending and treats. Well, suppose somehow you got a bigger windfall. I was seeing a friend in a few days and her father, the company that her dad works for, has just been sold. And I think... Um, lots of the employees have done rather well out of that. Suppose you had a windfall of, I don't know, 500,000, a million pounds even. What would you do with that? Maybe a new house, uh, somewhere bigger, somewhere nicer, a bigger garden. Maybe save it. No more worries about the future. Maybe the chance to help some people out in your family, maybe if they need that. Or the chance to fulfil a dream, take the family somewhere really special. It's a tantalising question to consider. If you had more money, what would you do with it? But here's another question. If you had more money, would it make you happier? Even in our culture, people know that that is not a question with an easy answer. On the one hand, of course, it's great to have more money. It makes life easier in a hundred different ways. Of course it's good to have money. And yet we also know, everyone knows, it's part of common sense, popular wisdom, the problems of money. We know about affluenza. We've seen the people who seem to have too much money and are terribly unhappy. And really every human culture has observed this. So the Romans apparently had a saying about money being like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier it makes you. Or I I remember a friend who'd lived in Malaysia quoting a proverb from there, even a penny can block out the sun. It's an elegant way of saying that money can become a harmful obsession, casting its shadow over our lives, even if we haven't got very much. Well, think about the famous quotes. Um, John D. Rockefeller, a very rich American oil man, I think, who was once asked famously how much money it took to be happy and his, his answer has become a proverb, a little bit more. Or, um, you know, in popular culture, if you're a Beatles fan, I don't care that much for money, money can't buy me love. Or um, if your tastes lie elsewhere, mo money, mo problems, um, says the notorious B.I.G. I think said rather than sang is the word there. Is an inconsistency within us as we face this question. Will money make us happy? We know that it won't. And yet we suspect 
that it might. That's true, isn't it? That's how I feel. We know that money won't make us happy, and yet we think we probably would be a little bit happier if we had more money. Well, we come to a passage in the Bible this evening that really tackles this whole issue head on. It's not just about money, it's about our possessions, wealth, greed, and contentment. And I think that what it says may well surprise us. A lot of it won't come as a surprise. Much of it fits with the kind of wisdom, the observation that we have in our human culture from looking at the world around us. But the punchline of this passage, I think, will come as a shock. Because Ecclesiastes says to us this evening, our problem is we don't know how to enjoy ourselves. That's what the Word of God says to us tonight. Your problem is, you don't know how to have a good time in life. Not really. Money is not the issue. It's about our hearts. And the teacher wants to show us how to find real joy. Now, as we look at these two chapters, five and six, we haven't really got time for a big recap. So let me just point out the two places in chapter five where the kind of headline question of the book, the headline question from chapter one is restated. Have a look at verse 11, please. Even if a person's wealth increases, what's the benefit? That's the question. Or in verse 16, over the page. What does a man gain? What does he gain since he toils for the win? That's the headline question of the book. What's the point in life? What do we gain? Because we're all going to die. Ultimately, that's where we're all heading. We, we pass through life. We cause barely a ripple. Life is fleeting. It's a breath. It's here and then it's gone. And in the end, nothing will be left of us or of anything that we earned or owned. So what's the point? Where's the gain? Um, some of the most helpful teaching I have come across on Ecclesiastes came from Trinity Church in Aberdeen with Peter Dixon and David Gibson. Um, David Gibson came to Cornhill a few years ago when I was doing that course and he taught us Ecclesiastes for a week. It was brilliant. And he had a kind of a catchphrase for the book, which was this. He says, you're going to die, so learn how to live. You're going to die, so learn how to live. We see that again and again in, in Ecclesiastes, and that's a big part of the wisdom about money and contentment that this passage has for us this evening. And just before we look at it, one more preliminary comment. We just need to emphasise again how high the stakes are. Because it, it, it may well be, I guess money is an area of life, if, if you're like me, you kind of think about it once in a while and you kind of reassess how, you know, and maybe you're thinking, well, I did that fairly recently. I feel like this part of my life is fairly well in order. I sat down, we worked out, we got the standing order, and being quite generous, giving in this area of life. There's not really much more to say about it. But we need to be really, need to pay very close attention to what the teacher says here, because the stakes are very high. On the one hand, verse 10 of chapter 5, the teacher says that he sees people who are never satisfied. Verse 12, he sees people who get no sleep, no rest. Verse 17, over the page, he sees people who are very angry and bitter because of the place of money in their hearts. And then over in chapter 6, verse 3, 
He sees people who are worse off, he says, than a stillborn child. That's a very shocking statement. A person who is foolish in this area can end up very badly off. Whereas, if you look at the end of chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, we'll see in the passage that it's the same structure as last week. It's like a sandwich with the bread around the outside and then the meat in the middle. Um, or what other, any other filling you prefer. It doesn't have to be meat. Um, the, the bread around the outside and then the filling in the middle. The good bit is in 5.18 to 20. Just look at that. We'll read that a few times tonight. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects upon the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. That's what we want, isn't it? That is what we want. And so we need to listen to the teacher. He says two things. It's on the back of the um, service sheets. They're not perfect summaries. See that it's it's not actually very easy to to perfectly summarise what the teacher says. But two broad points. First, the outside of the sandwich. If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. And then the inside bit that we'll get to, if you enjoy God, you'll enjoy life and money. Well, let's start off with the warning then. If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. The way that the teacher writes is impressionistic. There are some more photos from his photo album, like last week. But he also sprinkles in some proverbs, from little, some little pithy sayings that sum up the wisdom that he observes. And he's building up this case. If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. Let's have a look through it. Actually, first, let's um, skip over verses 8 and 9. We'll come back to that. I think that'll be clearer if we look at that a little bit later. So verse 10, let's start there. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Really, that speaks for itself. It's like the Roman proverb about the salt water. Money doesn't satisfy. It only ever makes us thirstier for more. But just notice a couple of little details. First of all, it's not money that's the problem. What does he say? It's the love of money. That's very important. There might just be people here thinking, you know, I haven't got very much money, so I'm not in danger of loving money. That is not the issue. It's not about our circumstances. It's about our hearts. It's possible to be very wealthy and not love money. And it's possible to have very little and yet love money. It's important that we see that. And the other important thing that we see that really gets built on in the passage is that uh, flexible concept of enough. Whoever loves money never has enough. What does it mean to have enough? In some ways, I mean not particularly useful, but in some ways there are objective limits to what a human being needs just to stay alive. What does it mean to have enough? Many of us would say, oh yes, I have enough in life. And yet there are people in the world who live out normal, happy lives with only a fraction of what we have. They seem to have enough. We have more than them, but we also have enough. What does it mean to have enough? The important thing, 
And like I said, this is built on later on. Satisfaction, this idea of having enough, satisfaction is not contained in things in and of themselves. It's not in the thing that we buy or consume. It doesn't work like that. A, a meal doesn't have one unit of satisfaction in it. Or a new jacket is two units. Or a new house is a hundred units. It doesn't work like that. Satisfaction is in the eye of the beholder. It's a relative thing. It depends on our hearts and how we interact with the things in the world. That maybe sounds like a slightly conceptual point, but it's important because it shows that there are two responses if we're unsatisfied, if we feel that we haven't got enough. There are two responses. We can either try to get more, or we can either, or on the other hand, we can try to want less. And it'll achieve the same thing. We'll come back to that. So verse 11, let's move on in his scattergun. He's building up a case. Verse 11 is very well observed. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes upon them? That's true, isn't it? You earn more money, but then you pay more tax. You buy a house, but then you find that there are all sorts of bills. You have to pay new insurance you never even heard of and maintenance costs. So you save up some money, but then you have to pay an accountant to help you with the paperwork. Or So you get really rich. You, you, you buy a bigger house, and it's got a bigger garden. But then because of the hours you're having to work, you can't clean the house. So you have to pay a cleaner. You can't take care of the gardens. So you have to pay someone else. And money multiplies the bills. It's what we find in life. Money multiplies the bills. And it doesn't bring us rest. That's what the teacher moves on to in verse 12. The sleep of the labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The rich person has much to worry about in the night time. But really, the, what the verse is talking about is his food, his stomach, the rich diet, the sedentary lifestyle of the wealthy, are not actually conducive to a good night's sleep. Whereas the labourer, the working man who works all day, is out like a light. And it's strange, because looking at them, we would envy the rich man. And yet, what he wouldn't give for a good night's sleep. In verse 13, he moves on to another picture from the photo album. Look at this, says the teacher. This is what I saw. It's not just lavish consumption that can turn out to our harm. Also, the frugal, the saver, the person storing up their money for a rainy day only to see it lost in some misfortune. The share price plummets. Negative equity on the house. The struggling bank has to restructure its finances with a nasty haircut for the bondholders. Maybe the teacher had been on holiday in Greece or Cyprus. Um, but these things happen. And the money that's been saved up is lost. And the people it was saved for never see it. Like life itself, wealth is fleeting. That's what the teacher talks about in this section. We arrive into the world with nothing, and that is how we leave it. It's the old line of the solicitor when asked, how much did Mrs. So-and-so leave behind in her will? Well, she left everything. They always do. But Jesus, 
told a story about a rich man who had been very shrewd. He'd stewarded his wealth very well. He'd laid up many good things for himself and then retired. But on the night of his early retirement party, God came to him and said, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? That's the teacher's point here. You're going to die, so learn how to live. If you want to hoard and save and cling on to things that are inherently elusive, then when they do elude you, you will be frustrated. Verse 17. It will leave you afflicted and angry. And again, that's true to life, isn't it? The person who has maybe earned a lot, but then finds that it doesn't make them happy. And so they resent and regret perhaps the years of toil and sacrifice they put in for it. Because what was it all for? And bitterness sets in. That's the first half of the sandwich. Now just have a quick look back at verses 8 and 9. I found it much easier to understand where these verses are coming from once you'd seen the context. What he's pointing out here is that wealth doesn't just harm us, it also harms others around us. Um, Our society is spoiled and soured by this impulse that is in us to make more and more money. Um, Sin is in our hearts, and so sin is also in the structures of society, and that's what he's talking about here. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, um, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, Everybody gets their their share. The king himself, at the top of the pile, profits from the fields. Because of our human greed, human society becomes a place where power is used for material gain. People get squeezed. Everybody has to pay their dues. There's a, a poem that somebody has written. Big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them, and little fleas have lesser fleas. And so, ad infinitum, how society looks, all the way to the top, because in our hearts, we love money. And you can see the same logic as you think about the global scale as well. If we focus on money, the teacher is saying, we'll never be happy. Quite the opposite. Love of wealth and things will harm us, and it will also drive us to participate in the harming of other people. Now, quite briefly, let's just jump over to the other side of the sandwich and see chapter 6. It starts off with a very miserable picture, a man with wealth and honour and everything he could possibly want, and yet he can't enjoy it. He's got it all, but he can't enjoy it. It takes us back to what we were thinking about earlier. Enjoyment is not contained within things themselves inherently, things we might have or consume or buy. Enjoyment comes from God. It's a human capacity or perhaps an outlook that comes from him. Just see how that's repeated in verse 2 and verse 3. God either allows us to enjoy things in life or he does not. And that is even true of the greatest wealth and blessing. That's what the teacher goes on to say. He he pictures a man who is unimaginably prosperous. Money, a long life, 
and a hundred children. We might not think of that as being particularly prosperous, but in the Old Testament terms, that's the sign of blessing. But the teacher's point is that having things is not the same as enjoying things. Consuming things is not the same as enjoying things. I think we get the point. I think that's enough, isn't it? If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. We need that already, of course, but we probably still don't believe it. The teacher is describing the madness that grips our world and that grips our own hearts too. We know money won't make us happy, and yet we think that we would be happier if we had more money. It'll be different for all of us. The different things that will lure us and attract our gaze. I don't know what it is for you. It could be clothes, savings, stuff for the house, stuff for the car, new gadgets, travel. It's different for all of us. But we know how it feels to want something and then to get it. And then actually not to be that bothered about it anymore. And then to want something else. It's very subtle. We might not know that we're doing it. Probably that's why the Bible talks a lot about money. It's why Jesus taught a lot about this love of money because it's hard to see, even in ourselves. There are a lot of other sins that are more open, more blatant. But this is easy to hide, even from ourselves. Why are we like this? Well, last week we thought about how Ecclesiastes was written with Genesis 1 to 3 very much in the background. And that is exactly the case here as we consider these chapters. What does Genesis 1, 2, 3 say? It says that we're made by a generous God and placed in a bountiful world to enjoy it. Matter matters. God has put us in this wonderful habitat that is so delightful in so many ways. We have this capacity to enjoy material things and that's good. It's natural. And yet we twist it. Instead of being happy with our lot as creatures, we want to be like God, usurping his position. Think about Adam and Eve. The one thing they were told they couldn't have, they wanted to possess it. Because the devil tempted them and said, you'll be like God, you know. And so they saw it, they took it. That's the desire that we share. The desire to be like God, to be in the place of a creator instead of as creatures. We want to control and have and own things. That's what Ecclesiastes is describing. Human existence as a failed attempt to be like him, like the Lord. Instead of living in our place as creatures, as recipients of what God chooses to allot us, we want to control, to expand our lot in life. We want more. And the writer is saying, stop it. Stop trying to be like God and to own this world because you're not an owner. God is the only owner. You are not an owner. You are a tenant. You are only passing through. You will soon be gone. Our desire is to have things, to hold them and hang on to them. Don't fit 
with this fleeting world or our fleeting lives. Everything we try to grab hold of slips through our fingers. So stop it, says the teacher. If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. Well then, what is the wise way to live? What should we do? Help us out. And the teacher says, enjoy life more. That's his answer. He's not anti-money. He's not anti-consumption. As you read the book, you get a picture of a person who was very happy to enjoy the finer things in life and to take the smooth with the rough, if I could put it like that. He's not anti-money. He's not anti-consumption. He wants to help us get more out of life, not less. And so he says, and this is now the filling in the sandwich, 5 verses 18 to 20, if you enjoy God, you'll enjoy life and money. It's fair to say this is more unusual. The religious impulse in humanity doesn't usually answer the question of money and greed like this. Usually we would seek to get rid of the things that tempt us. Let's sell up and be monks, nuns, ascetics, holy men with begging bowls. Well, let's not do that, says the Bible, because it's not about the things, it's not about the money, it's about our hearts. It doesn't matter whether we have them or not, it is about what our hearts are focused on, things or God. Let's have another look at the verses. Then I realised that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. He sees all the miserable attempts at acquisition in the world. But he also realises that there is a way of wisdom, a way to happiness. And it seems to spring from, or at least to accompany, an awareness of God. Notice how twice in this passage the writer talks about things that come from God as a gift, the things God gives. That is the sort of understanding that marks the wise and the contented person. They understand that things come from God as gifts. And there's another repeated phrase. It talks about accepting our lot in life. It's the same concept, really, that the Creator God allots to us. The Sovereign God allots to us the things that we have or don't have. That is the attitude that enables a person to enjoy the things they have. Because it's free. If it all comes down to me and what I earn and what I can save and the choices I make, well, there's a lot of pressure on me because what if I messed it up? Whereas if I see myself as the recipient of gifts, well, that's all profit, much better. And if stuff goes... Well, it goes. Easy come, easy go. It wasn't mine anyway. God was just lending it to me. I wasn't expecting to have it forever. I was just enjoying using the house, the car, the money, whatever it is, while God 
saw fit for me to have it. And the stuff I don't have, well, God obviously thinks that I don't need it at the moment. And I'm in his hands. I'm a creature after all, not creator. So I can live with that. Now the point of this, I should say, is not to promote a naivety about money. It's not to say that we shouldn't work or plan or analyse anything like that. That's not the issue. The teacher is not promoting an attitude that is childish, but childlike. That's what we get from these verses, that the person who is wise, the person who is happy, knows that ultimately, whatever they do, they're in God's hands, and that the things they have come from God's hands. This is the outlook, like the Apostle Paul says, that sets us free to be contented whether we have much or little. Scott read at the beginning of the service from 1 Timothy 6, command, this is a bit later on than the bit he read, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. The secret of contentment is to set your heart on on the Lord rather than on things. And Paul talks about two hallmarks there. Enjoyment, enjoying things, being thankful for the things that we do have. I wonder if that's your habit, to say thank you to God. so important only polite. But more than that, it unlocks contentment in our lives. Think about why do you teach children to say thank you? Well, partly because it's nice to be polite, but also because we want them not just to say thank you, but to be thankful and so enjoy the things they have so much more. That's how wisdom urges us to live, enjoying the things that God gives. And also to be generous to be open-handed with the things that God has lent us. Which leads us on to um, the um, final, final aspect of the teacher's wisdom here. You know the saying, um, life is what happens while we're making other plans. Do you know that saying? Well, it seems to me that the teacher is saying here that satisfaction is what happens when we focus on other things. Just look at that in verse 20. This wise man, he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. It's almost as if happiness comes to this person as an afterthought. You enjoy God. You enjoy life and money, in brackets, just without really noticing that that's happened. And that's what Jesus picks up on in the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that Robin read. He says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. It's a great misnomer that Jesus tells us not to worry. That's not true. Jesus is in favour. He wants you to worry. He just wants you to worry about the right stuff rather than the wrong stuff. 
seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the other things we're prone to worry about, all the other things in life will follow along behind. I think that's the sense we get from Ecclesiastes. The person who enjoys God, who in Jesus' terms is building his kingdom, pursuing righteousness, will find that the other things in life follow along behind in their proper place. And so really that's the application for us if we're Christians. Don't think about money so much. Apply yourself to building God's kingdom, whatever that means for you. Whatever the work, the toil he's given you to do. Teaching, speaking, living, serving, praying. Do whatever God gives you to do and the rest will follow along behind. It's not a promise that everything will go perfectly, will go well, because God's definition of that is often not the same as ours. But this passage is saying that we, we will find a contentment that comes in life from looking up and out instead of looking in. If you focus on money, you'll never be happy. If you enjoy God, you'll enjoy life and money. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about this topic, we are very aware that we need your help. We need the shining light of your spirit to illuminate the dark recesses of our hearts. Lord, please help us to know ourselves. Please give us that wisdom. Please show us ways in which we are gripped by a love of things, a love of money, a desire to have and be owners instead of letting go and happily embracing the truth that we're just passing through as creatures in your world. Lord, help us not to think that our security, that everything in life hangs upon us. Lord, please help us to get rid of that illusion in our lives. Help us instead to trust you and to seek your kingdom, to throw ourselves into that in in every part and so find that you keep us busy with your work and that you satisfy us with good things along the way. Well, please make us more like Jesus in this area of our lives. That wise and happy man who was so gloriously free of the love of money. I praise you for his grace to us. For though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we might be brought back to you through his poverty. Lord, please grant us wisdom to follow him and to live as your creatures in your world. For our good and for your great name's sake, that we might be thankful people. Amen.